Welcome to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. If you have any questions or would like to share your thoughts with me, you can write me at vbvpodcast at gmail.com. I'm beginning today with a reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. One of the hallmarks of Ephesians which set it apart from the rest of the New Testament is its vocabulary. There are 42 words in Ephesians which appear nowhere else in the New Testament, and 39 which appear nowhere else in the writings of Paul. There are also some terms which are used differently in this book than in any other. The adjective translated heavenly in Ephesians 1.3 and again in verse 20, in 2.6, 3.10, and 6.12 is used fairly often in the New Testament, but only here is it used substantively, meaning that it takes the role of a noun. Properly, it is simply the heavenlies, but the New American Standard Version translators are likely correct in identifying it as a location and translating it heavenly places. All the same, it is a difficult expression to define. Some have treated it as a figure of speech called metonymy, in which it would simply be a reference to God himself as the source of all these blessings which Paul describes. They come from heaven, which properly means they come from him who dwells in heaven. But this is not likely because God has already been named as the source, and thus it seems unnecessarily redundant. Furthermore, the same expression is used in reference to evil spirits, presumably fallen angels or some sort of corrupt and corrupting spiritual beings, in 6.12. They are also in the heavenly places. And certainly Paul is not meaning that these evil spirits are from God, at least not in the same way as the spiritual blessings that are in Christ. Others suggest that the phrase means the realm called heaven where God is, Matthew 6, 9. Yet, while I do not claim to fully understand the geography of the spiritual world, and there are certainly some passages that describe evil spirits as being in God's presence on some occasions, I think this is not likely Paul's meaning either. I think it is more likely that Paul simply refers to what he otherwise sometimes calls the invisible world. That part of God's creation, which includes the heaven where he now is enthroned, and includes other things that are generally very mysterious to us. In Ephesians 2.2, he calls it the air, and informs us that in addition to God and angels and the hosts of evil spirits, the devil himself is there and exercises his power from that same place. Furthermore, Jesus is there presently, having left this world, Ephesians 1.20. Of course, that's not surprising to us as Christians, because the Bible tells us in many places that Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God to receive power and authority to rule the earth. And I think when we picture the enthroned Christ, in whatever way we can envision that, we're getting the real essence of what the heavenlies or the heavenly places means. 
Yet this concept is challenging to us. Since the 1700s, Westerners have generally embraced a view of the world shaped by the philosophical movement called the Enlightenment. This movement did indeed have some positive impacts on areas of human living, like industry, science, medicine, and government, but it also had some very negative impacts, especially on religion. The philosophers of the Enlightenment rejected the reality of the spiritual world, or at least its ability to impact the material world, and embraced an utterly naturalistic approach to understanding life. From this philosophical shift came the rise of modern atheism and its efforts to explain the origin of the universe and life without God, as well as various social theories about gender, sexuality, ethnic differences, economics, and environmentalism, also without God. Many of us are deeply troubled by how these issues are affecting our lives and our society right now, and we may not realize the philosophical origins of these problems. But even more so, I do not think it would be possible for us to calculate and fully appreciate how much our own thinking, even those of us who are Christians, has been impacted by this worldview, including our reading of the Bible and our understanding of how God interacts with the world. Not all of those who embraced Enlightenment ideas became atheists. Some became deists. That is, they continued to believe in God and even to acknowledge that He was the source of all things as Creator, yet they rejected that He was involved in the operations of creation in any way. In fact, they rejected the possibility of His involvement. Nature is a closed system, they said, and God is far away. Outside of it, so are angels and any other spiritual forces. This meant no divine revelation. Thus, the deists did not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. This meant no miracles. Thus, the deists did not accept the virgin birth or resurrection of Christ, nor indeed any of the miracle claims of Scripture. This meant no incarnation. Thus, the deists believed that Jesus was a mere man and not divine. In fact, even prayer was a fruitless endeavor. God was so far away he could not hear, and even if he could, he could not do anything in response. Yet perhaps more alarming than the relatively small number of people who have ever truly embraced atheism or deism is the large number of Christians who have adapted their faith into a semi-deistic form. That is, they say they believe the Bible is the Word of God and that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe all the stories in the Bible, even the miraculous ones. They believe that God had something to do with writing the Bible and that during the early years of the Christian faith, he set up mechanisms and systems that would help people here on earth, such as the ability to have your sins forgiven. But they believe that shortly after the Bible was completed, God withdrew from the operations of the earth and became a mere spectator, watching and judging until he comes to get involved again at the end of time. Now, many Christians would not say it this way, though some might. But many Christians live this way. Many Christians try to make it through the world and even to live as disciples of Jesus in their own strength, 
without any true reliance on God or God's power, so that practically there's not much difference between them and a non-Christian other than their convictions and beliefs. They think there is nothing that they can't handle, and if there is, then there's just no hope for them. And God probably won't judge them too harshly in those areas because it isn't really their fault. When things are looking up and life is going well, they have hope and joy. And when things begin to look dark and grim, they despair and become pessimistic or cynical, just like everyone else in the world. Or they allow those pressures to lower their standards of conviction and faith to something that seems to be more manageable to them in their own strength and power. I suggest to you that Ephesians is, in large part, written to prevent Christians from falling into that trap. And a key component to Paul's plan in helping us is understanding the concept of the heavenly places. In the mind of Paul, whose understanding of the world was shaped by the history of Israel— by his own personal encounter with the risen Christ, by the Scripture, and by the direction of the Holy Spirit who spoke in him as a prophet and apostle. The visible world, the world which we call nature, is vitally connected to the invisible world, what he calls here in Ephesians the heavenly places. The writers of Scripture sometimes call it the invisible not merely because it cannot be seen with our eyes, but to convey its inaccessibility to us in our own power and strength. By our own faculties, we cannot investigate or understand the heavenly places or the persons and beings who live and function there or what their functions are. Those things are mysteries to us, concealed by the curtain of materiality. Yet, all the same, the Bible teaches that world is real, and the beings and persons who live there are different from us, even as that world is different from our world. Those beings and persons are not limited in the ways that we are. They have the ability to see and hear into this world, to communicate with this world, and even to impact what happens in this world according to their respective strengths and powers. Of course, as Christians, our most fundamental conviction is that God is real and is the almighty creator of all things, visible and invisible, Colossians 1.16. While we have learned from Christ that there are three persons who share the one divine nature, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Bible emphasizes that their unity in the divine nature is so great that when we see them, we acknowledge that they are one God. Furthermore, as Christians, we believe, along with all those of ancient Israel and all true worshipers since the beginning of time, that the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the only true God. No one is beside him as an equal, Deuteronomy 32 and 39. All things, including all other spiritual powers and persons, are from him and exist for him, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. And he is over them, through them, and in them, Ephesians 4, 6. As we consider these things, we must keep this in perspective. The reality of other spiritual beings and powers 
does not change the fact that there is only one God and he is supreme above all. When the ancient people received revelation from God about this spiritual world, they used the sky as a representation of it. The sky is different from the land, and the invisible world, the heavenly places, is different from the visible, the world in which we live. Remember how Paul calls it the air in Ephesians 2, probably for the same reasons. Since the sky represented that world, they also used the things in the sky, like the sun, moon, and stars, to conceive of the creatures which God had made to work and rule in that other world. This is why you will sometimes find passages of Scripture which speak of stars as though they were beings with personalities, like Job 38 and verse 7. Sometimes you'll find the Old Testament uh, talking about people who worshipped the stars and the planets and where God's people were told not to do that, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 19. This was because those people associated the lights they saw in the sky with spiritual beings. But the Word of God tells us that all other spiritual beings, even the most powerful, are not like God. They are creatures like us, servants of God in different ways, and they are never to be worshipped. Yet it appears within the story of the Bible that some of the spiritual creatures are corrupt, and they desire a worship which they do not deserve. Chief among them is Satan, but there are others as well. They were the instigators of the rebellion in the Garden of Eden, which brought the old humanity into ruin and the world through them. And the Bible teaches that throughout history, these evil spiritual forces have continued to be involved in the affairs of the earth, working to lead human beings into sin and evil and destruction. They are involved in the creation and promotion of false religion and occult spirituality. 1 Timothy 4, 1-5, 1 Corinthians 10, 20. They are involved in the creation and promotion of philosophical systems which reject God and his work in the world, like atheism and deism, 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. They are involved in the direction of human civil government, especially in regard to war, persecution, greedy, oppressive, and destructive policies that have historically driven national relations. Daniel 10, 13, and 20, Luke 4, 6, 1 Kings 22, 19-22, Revelation 27 27-8. They are at least on occasion involved in calamities and disasters which cause people to question God's goodness, Job 1, 18-19. Even the individual misdeeds of every person in the world who participates in sinful and destructive behavior all, in some respect, arise from the work of these evil spiritual forces, according to James 1, verse 14. The Apostle Paul and all the writers of Scripture tell us that contrary to our modern Western way of thinking— the things which transpire in our world, the things which we see, and which are likely uh, to be ascribed to purely naturalistic causes by our greatest minds, are in a significant way being influenced and manipulated and motivated by the work of forces which we cannot see. 
forces who are at work in the heavenly places. Paul, as he draws back the curtain and reveals to us what is the truth of the matter, even goes so far as to say that because of this, we must recognize that our real enemies are not the humans who are doing us harm or doing evil things in the world. If we were to somehow restrain them, to lock them away, or even to kill them, we would not stop the evil because it is not really them. It is the forces at work behind them and in them. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, then, why it is so destructive for a Christian to try to live and walk and work and war in his own strength or in her own strength. We're fighting an enemy that we cannot see, and one that sometimes we may foolishly be convinced is not even real. We are limited in ways that the enemy is not. In our own strength, the best we can do is box the air until we have worn ourselves out. Yet the gospel is a message of good news in regard to this matter. It is not merely Satan and evil spirits who are in the heavenly places. Jesus is there as well. And in the heavenly places, he has already defeated the enemy. In the heavenly places, he has already disarmed them and made a public spectacle of them and humiliated them by the utter defeat of their purposes, says Colossians 2 and 15. In the heavenly places, he is already sitting on a throne with those enemies crushed beneath his nail-pierced feet. 1 Peter 3.22 And the Bible says that when we are baptized into Christ, we are incorporated into his body and become sharers and participants together in his identity. So Paul says God has seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.6. In Christ, life is not a fruitless struggle against an overpowered foe. In Christ, our hope is not that God will somehow excuse our failures because of our weaknesses. In Christ, the war has already been won. Yet Bible readers have long recognized that there is a tension in the message of Scripture between the already and the not yet. In this place, Paul says we are seated with Christ, who has already defeated the devil and all his forces. But to the Romans, in Romans 16.20, he said, The God of peace will crush Satan soon under your feet. In one sense, it is already. But in another sense, in the visible complete sense, it is obviously not yet. This is true of all the spiritual blessings Paul describes here in Ephesians chapter 1. God has already justified us by the forgiveness of our sins and made us holy and blameless in Christ, but we are not yet holy and blameless in fact. We all stumble in many things, and we recognize that we have much progress yet to make before we could appropriately be described in those terms. He has already adopted us as sons in Christ, but we have not yet experienced the inheritance 
which has been promised to us. We have already heard the voice of the Son of God and been made alive from being dead in our trespasses and sins, and we have been raised up to newness of life. John 5, 25-27, Ephesians 2, 5-6, Romans 6, 4. But we have not yet heard the word of Christ that will call our bodies from the graves and give us immortality in the resurrection of the dead. John 5, 28-29. What Paul is saying is that what we have already has come to us in Christ from where he is in the heavenly places. And there, what has not yet come to us is already true in him. And this means that we have received already something that assures us that what we have not yet received is certainly coming if we remain faithful in him. What is the ultimate hope of the believer? What is it that all the spiritual blessings Paul describes have in common as their goal and function? It is not merely to escape pain and suffering and punishment. That's all many Christians think about in regard to salvation, but that is not the main concern in the Word of God. The ultimate hope of the believer is to be like Jesus— so that God will be glorified in us as he is in him. 1 John 3, 2-3 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Paul says, Christ in us is the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 Christ-likeness is the goal. If we are in him, that is what we have been predestined to. And we are already experiencing the victory of that goal. It has been produced in our lives from the heavenly places in this world, even as we move toward what we do not yet have. What then does that victory look like in this world? Does it mean never getting sick or having pain? No, I do not think so. To be sure, God has healed some of his people at different times and When he does, it is not surprising because he is kind and compassionate. But the Bible itself talks about Christians who God did not heal, but he allowed them to suffer from physical afflictions even as they served him. Does it mean never having trials and tribulations? Quite the contrary. Both Jesus and the apostles inform us that these are a certain feature of a godly life. Does it mean reaching a state of such entire sanctification that our struggle with sin is totally removed? That does not appear to have been the experience of any disciple in Scripture. Paul tells us what it means. To live and walk in victory is to have the fruit of the Spirit born in our lives. 
We have been sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. And though we are weak, we are broken, we are ignorant, we are unstable, we are deceived, and we have not yet been fully delivered from those problems so that in our own strength we are sure to fail, yet from the heavenly places the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This transforms us more and more each day into a warrior clad in the armor of Christ's own character, who is able to stand against all the attacks of the enemy. Ephesians 6, 13-17. This enables us to sing, And though this world with devils filled would threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not at him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. The Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abides. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sides. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.